Okay, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'm excited. Romans chapter 6 is... I, I can't overstate how important this chapter is to the Christian if you happen to come today, you're blessed. Because we're going to really be examining and meditating upon the words of Scripture that can actually give you freedom from sin's power. Which I don't, I think that's in the heart of every Christian, that you want to be free from sin's power. Praise God. Well, before we do anything else, let's pray. And then we'll, we'll read verses 1 to 7 together. Lord, we bow before you. Our hearts are bowed before your greatness. We're privileged, Lord, to look into your inspired, inerrant word that gives us truth and teaches us how we can be free from sin's power. And so, Lord, would you minister to your people through your word and cause your Holy Spirit to be working, Lord, as we open this word and think about it deeply. Will you help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives so that we would more and more be free from sin's power in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This morning we come to a new section in the book of Romans. The first five chapters have to do with our justification. Remember in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's the theme of the rest of the book. The gospel revealing God's righteousness. And so for the first five chapters, Paul deals with this righteousness of God that is given to us when we believe in Christ. That's what justification means. We put, place our faith in Christ. God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. We stand in him accepted and perfect because of what Christ has done. So chapters 1, 2, and chapter 3, all the way up to verse 20, talk about our need for justification. And then chapter 3, 21 to 31, talks about Paul explaining justification. And then chapter 4, Paul illustrates justification in the person of Abraham. And then chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he shows us the fruits of justification. And then chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, he gives us the basis for justification. How many of you can remember seven days ago when we talked about <laughs> Romans 5, 12 to 21? Adam and Christ, remember that? Both yes. of them are representatives. Yes. Those that Adam represents receive what he did. It's put to their account. What did he do? He sinned. And so condemnation and death are put to their account. But 
Christ also represents a people, all who trust him, all who believe in him. And what he did is put to their account. What did Christ do? Righteousness, perfect righteous living, that's put to our account. And also uh, life. So Adam brings condemnation and death. Jesus brings justification and life. If we are in Adam, we receive condemnation. If we're in Christ, we receive justification. So Romans 5, 12 to 21 is super important because it's like a transitional text between this section on justification and the next section on sanctification, which is chapter 6, 7, and 8. And the reason it's a transitional text is because it points to our union with Christ. We are justified because we're united to Christ. If we are in Christ, his righteousness is credited to us. But I don't know if you realize this or not, but your sanctification comes to you on the very same basis that your justification comes to you, through union to Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to open up for us in chapter 6. Because of our union to Christ, we have died with Christ to sin, and we've been raised with Christ to newness of life. So chapter 6 shows us our union to Jesus and how not only are we justified by being in Christ, but we're also sanctified by being in Christ. Now, what do we mean when we talk about sanctification? I'm going to give you a real simple definition. And there's several that we could give, but this is one that has always stuck with me. Sanctification is becoming in practice what you already are in position. So positionally, the Christian is the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. But sanctification is now becoming in practice what you already are in position. If you're justified, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. But that doesn't mean that you're always manifesting that righteousness in your daily living. So sanctification is putting that on display in your daily life where the righteous acts of God begin to flow from your life practically. In practical daily living. Now, Romans 6, verse 7, tells us that he who has died is freed from sin. How does the Christian make progress in holiness? How does he make progress in his sanctification? Well, Romans 6, 7 says that it happens when he realizes and counts on his death to sin with Christ. When that happens, he is freed from sin. How many here would like to be freed from sin? Me. <laughs> I want to be freed from sin. I don't believe the Bible promises that we will ever be completely and absolutely free from sin in this life, but we can make progress, and we should be making progress and bring more and more freed from sin in our life. That's what sanctification means. Now, verses 1 to 14 of chapter 6. Paul uses three words to tell us how this progress is made. The three words are knowing, considering, and presenting. If you have a King James, that second word is reckoning. <laughs> knowing, reckoning, and presenting. So I look at those as paths on the path towards holiness. First, we know something. You can't reckon and you can't present anything until you know something. So that's the very first thing. You have to know something about our union to Christ. And when you begin to 
Believe what the Bible tells you is true about yourself and begin to act on that by presenting the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. Real lifestyle holiness begins to take place in the believer's life. So knowing, considering, and then presenting. So it's really important that we know the truth. It's foundation. Christian living depends upon Christian learning. Many Christians say, well, doctrine's not important. I disagree with them. I believe doctrine is extremely important. We can't act on something we don't understand. We need to know truth. That's, he tells us three times in this passage that we are to know something. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Or verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him? Or verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. So we must know this if we are to have victory Amen. in our Christian life. Good. Now, verses 1 to 7, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I believe in this section, Paul is teaching us three things that we need to know. Verses 1 and 2, we need to know that the believer has died to sin. Verses 3, 4, and 5, we need to know that the believer has been united to Christ. And verse 6 and 7, we need to know that the believer has been united to Christ in his death. All right. Let's, let's start looking at the text. The first thing Paul tells us here is that the Christian has died to sin. Look at verse 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, before we can really understand what's going on here, we need to understand how Paul addresses subjects often in his epistles, especially in the book of Romans. He has a formula that he uses, and you see it over and over and over. Chapter 6, chapter 7, uh, chapter 9, and chapter 11. He uses this method, this process of teaching. And here's how it goes. Number one, he poses a question from an objector, someone who's objected to something that he's just said. Set number two, he responds with, may it never be. In other words, that objection is wrong. Then number three, he tells us why the objection is not valid. Now that's what he does here. Here's the question from the objector. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? There's the answer, may it never be. There's the reason why we can't do that. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, he gives us the short answer in verse 2. The short answer is, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? But then he gives us a longer answer in verses 3 to 14. And in that longer answer, he's just unpacking what he's just said in verse 2. So verses 3 to 14 are an exposition of his short answer in verse 2. You see what I'm saying? Now, let's look at the objection for a minute. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Why would Paul even come up with this question? Where does the question arise? Well, go back to chapter 5. It arises from something he said in chapter 5, verse 20. Because there, he says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the person listening to Paul's teachings is, is thinking, okay, well, isn't it kind of good then that people sin because it gives God a chance to show how gracious he is? If we sin more, that gives God a chance to show more grace. And isn't it a wonderful thing that God gets to show grace upon grace? So shouldn't we just go on continuing in sin so that God can show more and more grace? You see the reasoning behind this objective? Okay. So the objector feels the gospel doesn't give any motivation to living a holy life. It's by grace alone. It's not by our works of righteousness. God does it all. We simply trust him. So maybe we should just go on living in sin. God can go on living and showing his grace. Now, my, my friend Mark Webb used to always say, hey, God and I would make a great team. I love to sin. He loves to show righteousness. You know? Well, let's look at Paul's answer. Verse 2. May it never be, megunoito in the Greek, may it never be. The King James translates it, God forbid. God forbid, yeah. J.B. Phillips translates it, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> what a ghastly thought. Um, really what Paul is meaning by that is, no, 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 this can never be. The English Standard Version translates it, may that never happen. By no means. And Paul's answer is, is very simple and very succinct. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The, the short answer is you can't do it. If you have become a Christian and you've been united to Christ, you can't go on living in sin like you used to. There's the answer to the objective. Should we just go on living in sin? Sorry, if you've been born again, you can't do it. It's not going to happen. Now, let's notice what Paul doesn't say here, because that's just as important as what he does say. There's all kinds of misconceptions we can get by reading through this chapter. He doesn't say that the Christian cannot commit an act of sin. Right? He doesn't say, how shall we commit an act of sin if we've died to sin? He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Live, living in sin is different from committing an act of sin. A fish lives in water. That's its natural habitat. But if you take that fish and put him on the bank, uh, he's not going to do well. The Christian is like a fish. But we are a fish swimming in streams of righteousness. If you take us and throw us up on the bank, we're going to flop on the until we get back in that water. We're not going to be, we're not going to do well out of the environment that God has created for us. So he doesn't say the Christian cannot commit an act of sin. Something radical has happened to us and within us that makes it impossible for us to go back living and continuing in sin like we did before we were converted. And Paul not Paul, but John, gives us a really good description of this in 1 John 3, 9. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin, or we could even say lives in sin, or we could say continues in sin. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. The word abide means to remain or to live in. God's seed, I believe that's referring to the Holy Spirit, who is placed inside the believer. He lives there. He remains there. 
and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So I think 1 John 3, 9 helps us to understand Romans 6, 2. Why can't we go on living in sin? Because God's seed abides in us. He won't let us. He's going to convict you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to chastise you if you try to live in sin. Now, Paul also didn't say that sin is dead to us. Did you notice that? He said that we died to sin. It's not that sin is dead. It's that we're dead. That's what Paul is saying. Sin is alive. Sin is all, it's very much alive all around us, everywhere we go. But the Christian is dead to sin. That's what he says. Sin doesn't die. But if we die, we can be free from his power. He also doesn't say that we are dying to sin. Right? He doesn't say that in verse 2. He says, how shall we who die? Past tense. It's, in the Greek, it's the aorist tense, which means a past completed action. It's done. It's not a process that we're doing. It's something that happened to us in, in a moment in time in the past. We died to sin, according to Paul. And he also doesn't say that we ought to die to sin. We should die to sin. No. He's not exhorting us. Verse 2 is not an exhortation. He's stating the fact. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? This isn't an exhortation. He's just telling you what's true about you. You can't go on living the way you used to because you died to sin. So the born-again believer has died to sin, something that is a radical change in his life which cannot be reversed or erased. But how did that death to sin take place? That's verses 3 to 5. Let's look at it. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now he starts off by saying, Do you not know? It's almost as though Paul is expressing shock and dismay that there might actually be some believers there in Rome who don't know these truths. Folks, this is Christianity 101. It might sound weird to our ears to read and understand chapter 6, but Paul expected all the believers he was writing to to know this. Don't you know this? I mean, this is basic. If we don't know this, we're behind the curve. We need to catch up real quick because this is such... Elementary and basic teaching that it will affect your Christian life. Don't you know this? Now, in verse 3 and 4, he talks about being baptized. He mentions it three times. In verse 3, he says, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And a lot of people, when they come to Romans 6, and read about baptized, they automatically think of water baptism. I don't think that's what he has in mind here. I don't think there's a drop of water in Romans chapter 6. I don't believe this is talking about water baptism. And I'll tell you why. I'll give you my reasons. Number one, whatever this baptism is, it's able to effect a spiritual union with Jesus Christ that saves. And water baptism can't do that. 
Water baptism doesn't have the power to effect a union between you and Christ. We know that from verse 3. He says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Well, if you are baptized into Christ Jesus, that's talking about a union between you and Christ. Now, is water baptism able to bring that about? If you just baptize someone, are they automatically now in Christ? I don't think so. I don't think water baptism has the power to do that. Now, verse 4 says, We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Does water baptism have the power to cause you to be buried with Christ and to die with Christ? I don't think so. I believe water baptism is symbolic. It symbolizes our union to Christ, but it can't actually produce it or effect it yeah. in our lives. Amen. Amen. The second thing, second reason why I don't think he's talking about water baptism is because I believe he explains what he means by baptism in verse 5. Amen. Well, let's, let's just read verse 5 and we'll go back. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, I'll stop there. How does verse 5 begin, Bible scholars? What's the first word? Mean. No? Four. Four. What does that word tell you? It explains. Paul is explaining in verse 5 what he's just got done telling them in verses 3 and 4. He's restating, explaining, and elaborating on the truth he's just given them in verses 3 and 4. Now, verses 3 and 4 are being are talking about being baptized into Christ's death. Let's just read it again. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Verse 3 and 4 talk about being baptized into Christ's death. Then verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, do you see how he's changing the word from baptism to something else in verse 5? He's using another synonym to explain the same thing. What's the new word that's not baptism? United. If, he doesn't say we've been baptized in the likeness of his death. He says we've been united with him in the likeness of his death. So he explains the meaning of verses 3 and 4 in what is a spiritual union that takes place between the believer and Christ. Now, why would he use the word baptism to describe that? Let me get to that in just a minute. I want to back up just a minute. So my conclusion is he's not talking about water baptism in verses 3 and 4. He's talking about spirit baptism. And what do I mean by spirit baptism? Well, I believe it's the same baptism we read about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Where Paul says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're not baptized into water. What are we baptized into here? One body, it says. We're baptized into one body. So, when the Holy Spirit takes you and places you into Christ, well, now you're also placed into his body. You're in Christ, but you're also a member of all the other members of his body throughout the world at that very moment. You're united, you're baptized into Jesus and his body at the same time. 
And every true believer then drinks of that same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, who indwells them now. So that's what I think he's talking about in Romans 6, 3, and 4. It's to be baptized by the Spirit into Christ and into his body all at the same time. Now, why would he use the word baptism then, if that's what he's talking about? Well, let's talk about the meaning of the word baptize. The word baptize is a transliteration. So what that means is that the Greek word was baptizo, and so they didn't actually translate the word into English. They transliterated it. What that means is they, they, they came up with a new word that sounded just like the old word, but they didn't give it a definition or a meaning. So it was baptizo, now it's baptism. So what is the definition of this Greek word, baptizo. Well, it means to immerse, or to submerge, or to place a person or thing into a new environment so as to alter its condition. Now, that's really important. To place a person or thing into a new environment so as to alter its condition. In the time the Bible was written, they would use this word, baptizo, to talk about cloth that was immersed and submerged under dye, and when they took that cloth out, it was now baptized. It had been placed into a new environment or condition to alter it so they would never be the same again. It now took on the, uh, the form, the color, the whatever of this new dye. It was also used of cucumbers that were submerged under brine in order to make them into pickles. Now when that cucumber came back out, it had been baptized. It had been placed into a foreign element and radically changed now, so it will never be the same as it was before. It was pickled, <laughs> baptized. So the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit takes us and places us into Christ, that's the new environment. So we're like we're like the cucumber, and Christ is like the brine, and the Holy Spirit takes us and submerges us into Jesus, and we come out different people. We'll, we'll never be the same again. Radically altered. So the central idea of this section of the book of Romans is that the believer has been united to Christ. Union to Christ is what he's talking about. Now, how do I know? Because of all the expressions he keeps using over and over and over, like verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He talks about there being baptized into Christ Jesus. Into Christ. Or verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him. Or verse 5. United with him. Or verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. Or verse 8. If we have died with Christ. Or verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All of these expressions denote a union between you and Jesus. With Christ, in Christ, into Christ, with him. They're all talking about the same thing. Union, the believer and Christ are united together by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. and This is the point Paul's trying to make. When we were united to Christ, we inherited Christ's history. When we were united to Christ, we inherited his history. Well, what is Christ's history? Well, he lived a perfect life, Ooh. then he died to sin, Amen. then he rose from the dead, 
Then he ascended to heaven, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Did you know the Bible tells us that every true believer has been credited with Christ's perfect life, then they died with him to sin, then they rose into newness of life, and they have ascended and they have sat down at the right hand of God in Christ. And whether you can understand that or not, the Bible clearly says that all that's true about you and me if we're born again. So we have inherited Christ's history. You say, well, Brian, that just sounds crazy. I don't know how that could have happened to me. How did I inherit his history? Well, let me use a couple of illustrations that have been helpful for me. Let's say that you are a branch on a wild apple tree. And one day a farmer comes by and snips you off and grafts you into another apple tree. And it's kind of painful getting snipped, but now that you're back into the new apple tree, you're kind of enjoying hanging around on this new apple tree and everything's fine. And then one day you notice that somebody walks by and they get real excited while they look at the trunk of your tree. And it's because they see a carving in that trunk. And the carving says, George loves Martha. 1758, the big heart. And lo and behold, this is a tree that George Washington expressed his love for his beloved fiance Martha in the year 1758, and you carved that into the trunk of the tree, and whenever that was discovered, it becomes a national landmark, and floods of people come by, and tourists and visitors, and they start looking at you. <laughs> You say, why are they looking at me? I wasn't even around in 1758. I was on a different tree back then. Well, you inherited the history of the tree that you have been grafted into. Just as you have inherited the history of Christ if you've been engrafted into him. That old twig is no longer a twig in the old wild apple tree. He is now a new twig on a George Washington apple tree. You see, his old self is gone, and he's now a new self. Or let's take a different illustration. Let's say that you lose your thumb in a freak accident. That's okay, because the doctors are able to locate another thumb. And they take that new thumb, and they sew it on your hand. But that new thumb starts to worry. I wonder if I'm going to get chicken pox. Because the guy that I used to belong to, he never got chicken pox. So I, I might get chicken pox and I might get real sick. So this thumb is worrying about that. But here's the situation. The, the body that he has been grafted onto, that body's already had chicken pox. So is the thumb able to get chicken pox when it's been grafted into a body that's already had chicken pox? No. See. That thumb inherits the history of the person it's grafted into. You inherited the history of Jesus Christ when you were born again. When you were born again, what he did by living, dying, being buried, rising, ascending, and being enthroned at God's right hand, when you're born again, you realize, wow, all of that has happened to me because I am in him. Somehow, in God's purposes, in God's mind, he took all of those who had ever trusted Jesus, and they were in him when he did those actions. He was living not as just a lone person, but as a representative, representing all who would ever believe in him. When he died, 
He was bringing them all up into himself, and they were dying with him. When he was buried, they were buried with him. When he rose from the dead, they rose in him. When he ascended and sat down, they all did the same thing in their representative. That's what Romans 6 is telling us. Isn't that glorious? We need to believe this. You can't just think about it. You need Christ. Third truth. The Christian has been united to Christ in his death. And that comes out very clearly in verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now let's just notice again what the text does not say before we meditate on what it does say. It doesn't say that we are crucifying ourselves. Does it say that? Our old self was crucified. It's passive. Passive tense. Was crucified. That means you didn't do it. Somebody else did this to you. You were. Your old self was crucified by somebody else. In fact, physically, it's impossible to crucify yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could probably nail my feet to the board, but I can't nail my hand. Right. It's physically impossible. It's also spiritually impossible for you to crucify your old self. But it's not impossible for God. God does that work. It also doesn't say that our old self is being crucified. Does it? Our old self was. Was. Same thing in verse 2. We died to sin. Our old self was crucified. And also, it doesn't say that we should pray that God would crucify our old self. You know? Pray about it. If I can't make it happen, maybe God, maybe if I pray real hard, God would crucify my old self. Well, no, it doesn't say that at all. He's telling us facts that have actually happened to us already. And the fact is that our old self was crucified with him. That's like a, a chair that has had one of its legs knocked out from under it, praying, oh, God, make me a three-legged chair. Please, God, make me a three-legged chair. Well, he's already a three-legged chair. You can pray for God to crucify your own self all you want. It's already happened. If you've been born again, it's already done. It happened when Christ died. Okay, so he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified. Who's the old self that he's talking about? Who is this old self? Go back to chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. This is the person who was in Adam. This is the old twig who is living on an old tree before he was cut out and grafted into the new tree. The old person you were in Adam was crucified because God took you out of Adam and he took you over here, and he united you to Christ by the Holy Spirit. So you're living in a new tree. The old tree is extinct. He's gone. He can never come back again. He's history. He's Because you're now in a new tree. You're now in Christ. So the old Brian is gone. He doesn't exist anymore. When Jesus was crucified, I was crucified with him. When I'm born again, I discover that my old self was crucified when Christ was crucified. Now, verse 6. Why did God crucify your and my old self? Why did he do that? He tells us. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. He tells us why. God crucified your old self with Christ in order that your body of sin would be done away with and that you would no longer be slaves to sin. Now that's going to require some meditation and some thinking this morning. Because what does he mean by the body of sin and how was the body of sin done away with? Those are questions that we need to ask and answer. First of all, what's the body of sin? I believe your eyes look at things you ought not look at. Your ears listen to things they shouldn't hear. Your mouth speaks things that it shouldn't speak. Or it consumes food or drink that it ought not consume. Or drugs. Your feet take you to places they ought not go. So this body of sin can be the vehicle which expresses a new self and acts of righteousness, or it can express sinful deeds um, that come out of this body. So what does it mean now that our body of sin was done away with? Knowing this, that our old self is very good, because it gives us the impression that the body of sin is gone, that it's been destroyed, that it has doesn't even exist anymore. And that's not what Paul is, is really trying to get at here. The literal rendition of the word done away with is rendered inoperative mm. or rendered that's powerless. Better. We were crucified with him in order that this body of sin would be rendered inoperative. Now, how is it rendered inoperative? It's rendered inoperative because the person who's inside the body of sin died. Amen. He can't operate the body of sin if he's dead. Let me give you an illustration that might help. Let's say we've got an 18-year-old who's just got his license, and his parents are filthy rich, and for his birthday, they give him this brand spanking new Ferrari. And this car can go 180 miles an hour on the freeway. And this guy loves to go fast, so he takes his car and he's ripping down the road as fast as he can go, 180 miles an hour. Well, one day he goes to work, and in a freak accident, he's killed. And so that new Ferrari just sits inside the garage, just sits there. It's been rendered inoperative, right? Super powerful engine, but that super powerful engine has now been rendered powerless because there's no one to drive the car. See, our body of sin didn't go away, but because we died with Christ to sin, it has been rendered inoperative or powerless because we died with Christ on the cross. That's what Paul's getting at. It's not that the body of sin died, it's that the person inside the body of sin died. The old self who used to say, uh, yeah, let's go sinning today. <laughs> that old self is not inside this body of sin anymore. You got a new self inside there. Yes, he might commit acts of sin, but then he's always guilty. He always feels convicted. He always repents. Yeah. He feels ashamed. God disciplines him. And see, there's a new person inside the body of sin that doesn't. He can't just go on living in sin like he used to. So what's the conclusion to all of this? A couple things. Union to Christ gloriously provides not only forgiveness, but it also provides freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Now let's say that our salvation only included 
forgiveness for all of our sins. Well, that would still be a huge blessing because that would mean I would never be condemned eternally for my sins. But even if I did have forgiveness for all my sins but still went on living in sin like I always did before, I'd live a miserable life until I got to heaven. The gospel not only includes forgiveness from the penalty of sin, but release or freedom from the power of sin. That's what Romans 6 is about. In 1920, the U.S. government enacted a law. It's called the Law of Prohibition. And it was that nobody could consume alcohol and beverages anymore. Didn't last very long because it wasn't very successful. <laughs> but let's, let's just liken this Law of Prohibition to what happens in the gospel. Okay? So if the government passes a law that nobody can drink alcohol anymore, how are they going to enforce that law? Well, they're going to have to get rid of all the alcohol that's still around, right? So nobody can drink it. So the police are going to have to go in, search every house, every place of business, confiscate all the alcohol, pour it out. But even if they did that and they got rid of all the alcohol in our homes, that's really not going to solve the problem if they've got factories all over the land pumping out millions of gallons of alcohol every day, right? So something's got to happen to put those power plants those manufacturing plants out of business so they can't keep on producing more alcohol. The gospel not only <laughs> frees us from the penalty of sin and provides forgiveness for all the sins we have committed, but it destroys the manufacturing plant. Mm. There's something inside of us that God has done by linking us to Christ that allows us to turn off this manufacturing plant so that we don't just churn out more and more and more. Something fundamental to our spiritual life has taken place. See, God provided forgiveness by bearing my sins on the cross, but God provided freedom from sinning by bearing me on the cross. Mm -hmm. Let that sink in. Because both of these things are taught in the Bible. He did bear our sins, but he also bore me. My old self was crucified with him, according to Romans 6.6. 6. Or to put it another way, my forgiveness was purchased because Jesus died for my sins, my holiness was purchased because Jesus died to sin. He died for sins, plural. He died to sin, singular. That's what we're told in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin. How is it that we died to sin? Well, Christ died to sin. And we're in Christ. So if Christ died to sin, so did I. The illustration that um, Watchman Nee uses is that if I take a piece of paper and put it in this book and then toss the book into the ocean, where does the paper go? In the ocean. How come? Because it's in the book, right? Wherever the book goes, the paper goes. I was in Christ. Wherever Christ went, I went. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. Because God put me into him. And by the way, how does a person get into Christ? We've discussed the fact that it doesn't happen through water baptism, but how does that even happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 gives us the answer. It says, but by his doing, it is God. But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, mm. who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. God did it. Water baptism can't do it, but God can do it. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13 says the Holy Spirit did it by placing us into Christ and in his body. Okay, so let's bring all this down. How do I apply these very high-sounding truths to my life on a practical way? And the first thing we need to know is, well, we need to know the truth. So what we've been talking about today, I hope you grasp it. And I hope you begin to think about it. And I hope you begin to count it as true in your life. That's how this will actually work itself out in terms of the sanctified life. Let's say there's a private in the U.S. Army, and this private has a cruel, mean drill sergeant who makes his life just miserable. He's doing extra push-ups every day. He's running laps until he about collapses. He really does not like this drill sergeant at all, but because he's in the Army, he has to respect him. He has to salute him whenever he comes by. He has to say, yes, sir, no, sir. Finally, one day, he gets released from the Army. And he and his family decide they're going to go out to a restaurant one day. Well, they're civilians now. So they go out to the restaurant. But out of the corner of his eye, he sees that old, mean-spirited <coughs> drill sergeant in fatigues. And he's walking towards him. And out of habit, he instinctively starts to bring his hand up to salute him. And then he remembers, wait a minute. I'm not in the Army anymore. <laughs> that drill sergeant has no jurisdiction over me. I'm a civilian. He's in the army. We're in whole different jurisdictions. He has no dominion over my life. And so I don't have to salute him. I don't have to say yes, sir, no, sir anymore. In fact, I can snub my nose at him. And he can't do anything to stop him. <laughs> and that's the way it is with sin. We're like the private. We've been released out of Adam. We've been put into Christ. And sin, which used to have dominion over us, it used to, we used to be slaves to sin, Wait a minute, I'm not even in the army anymore. I'm over here now. I'm a civilian. This, this guy over here, sin can't make me do anything. If I do obey sin, it's not because I have to. It's because I've decided to. See, I'm not forced to. I'm not a slave like I used to be. I can make a decision now because I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I've died to sin. Now, I'm a fool if I put myself under sin or obey it anymore. That's foolish for me to do. But of course, we make foolish decisions as believers. <laughs> so, what I want you to do this morning is simply to know the truths we've been talking about. <coughs> now, in three weeks' time, I'm going to come back. Pastor Jerome's going to preach for two Sundays, but in three weeks, I'm going to come back. And we're going to talk about considering that and then presenting the members of our body. Okay? What a glorious truth. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for including us in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And how that gives us hope, Lord. How we have hope now that we don't have to repeat the miserable life that we lived for so long that we can break free. So, Lord, teach us and help us to really grasp this truth. Help us to go back to it again and again and remind ourselves of who we really are. In Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.